Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. We are in Mark 8, and I'm going to read the rest of Mark 8. So we're starting in verse 27. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, What do people, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Lord's word. Good morning. Uh, Last week we talked about Mark chapter 8. We went through the first... Uh, 30-some verses, I suppose, and we didn't have time to finish. Uh, So we're going to go backwards a little bit, verse 27, and then carry on through. Last week we saw how Mark chapter 8 contains the central pivot of the whole book. In the grand tradition of junior high literature class, generally a story contains three parts after the characters have been introduced. There's the rising action, where the protagonists experience struggles and conflicts along the way. And then the story builds and builds all the way up to the climax point, the crest of the mountain, the peak conflict or problem, where our heroes may or may not succeed. Then the rest of the story is called the falling action, where all the little details get resolved and matters get neatly tied up right in time for a satisfying conclusion. And once again, I'm here today asserting that the climax moment of Mark's gospel comes with Jesus' question of the disciples, who do you say that I am? So as readers, the audience, those watching this narrative play out, we ask, will they get it right? Will they succeed in what Jesus has been preparing them for all this time? Verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, 
John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. Now we've broached this before, but for those of you who are just joining in, here at Mark's crescendo point, Jesus takes his disciples to almost the farthest place away from Jerusalem that you can go while still being in Israel. It's also the farthest place away from any, anywhere righteous in a spiritual sense. Caesarea Philippi was a cesspool of carnal pleasures and debauchery. It's constructed around a spooky cave that is affectionately known as the Hellmouth. And generations of pagans worship their gods and demons here through sacrifice and orgy. Herod the Great had recently built a temple here, and his son Philip the Tetrarch dedicated it to Caesar. But he added his name there too, which is how we get Caesarea Philippi. That's a little bit of emperor worship and a little bit of self-promotion all wrapped up. I want you to get this idea that this is a very bad place. But Jesus brings his disciples here to challenge them to a new level of understanding. Who do people say that I am? And the people have shared their opinions. Well, some say John the Baptist, citing Isaiah 40, a voice calling in the wilderness. Others, like Philip the Tetrarch's brother, Herod Antipas, sure thought Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead after he beheaded him. And still others said Elijah because the book of Malachi prophesies Elijah's return. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Mark 9, the next chapter, Jesus addresses both the John and Elijah crowds when he says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him, referring to John the Baptist. And finally, as some have called Jesus a prophet, referring to the one that Moses said would come after him. Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. But each of these opinions offered are inadequate, aren't they? They hearken back to the greatest names in Israel's history, but they in fact deny Jesus his definitive role. They fall short of the truth. And so he asks the disciples again, but this time personally he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with the wisdom given him from heaven, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And it's keen that he said such a thing in a place where Caesar was supposed to be Lord. Jesus tells them, speak nothing of this. And we ask, why? Why not tell the world now that they finally got it right? I mean, have you ever wondered what they were supposed to preach about when their master said, keep quiet, don't tell anyone about me? Again and again, we have seen Jesus say, say nothing. And it's because these lessons along the way were meant 
just for his disciples, just his chosen 12. They must understand first before anyone else. And here's the thing. Here's the big deal about Peter's answer being pivotal. To get the apostles to this point, the whole first half of Mark's gospel depicts Jesus coming in power. That's what we've seen so far. To start off, God splits open the skies and declares, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Then Jesus teaches with authority, an authority that Israel had never seen before. He heals all kinds of diseases and afflictions miraculously. He commands demons to leave. He calms seas and storms. He feeds multitudes. He corrects the most learned scholars and teachers. And he even raises the dead. So if this isn't the inventory of the Messiah, I don't know what is. Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah in power. And all these signs and wonders don't just prove that he has power or prove that his pedigree is divine, but that he is the fulfillment of Scripture after Scripture that have prophesied of the Messiah's might and majesty. And that's the staircase of the first half of this book. Jesus has what it takes. And Peter adds it all up for the rest of the twelve, and he says, you are the Christ. But just like every other interaction with a Jewish person that Jesus has seen, or that, sorry, that has seen Jesus might, he says, keep it under your hat. Don't tell anyone yet. This is known as the messianic secret. Jesus keeps all of his explanations low key because everyone with a Jewish background was looking for a hero, the winner the one who was promised by God to deliver them from their oppression. They were all awaiting a powerful king, righteous provider, deliverer, the mighty one, because of verses like Ezekiel 37, 24 and 5, my servant David shall be king over them. And this has already happened, but it's looking forward to a David-like king, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And there's this eternal kingdom idea that comes out happens again in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Eternity once again. And they were 
anticipating their Messiah to be a king and conqueror. No one but no one was seeking anything else. I'd like you to focus on this statement now. Where the first half of Mark is a demonstration of power, the second half is a demonstration of weakness. And that's the hodos, the road Jesus embarks on with his disciples through the rest of the gospel. From this point on, Jesus speaks openly, plainly, but about suffering and death. Another way of looking at this is that the first half of Mark is about who Jesus is, and the second is about what he came to do, and by extension, what his followers must do as well. Verse 31 and 2, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There is a great symbolic reason why Jesus healed the deaf man in chapter 7 and the blind man in chapter 8. It's a metaphor. Because it's, spiritually speaking, we all start out deaf and blind to the works and the truth of Jesus. And only God himself can rectify such deficiencies. Look at the Pharisees or the disciples, the crowds and Peter. They're all the same. Look at them. The disciples and the Pharisees are all the same. Moreover, Scripture says that you and I are no different from the unbeliever in our ability, or rather inability, to see Jesus. We need the very Spirit of God to grant us eyes and ears to hear. We're no different. One of the surest truths of the gospel is that no one has ever turned around and softened his own heart to the will and the ways of God. No one. That is God's territory alone. And while there's great symbolism behind the deaf and blind healings, there is a particularly strong symbol behind Jesus choosing to heal the blind man twice. Just like the blind man, Peter saw things only partially. He could not see the full picture. He identified Jesus as the Christ, it's true, but his understanding, his vision of who the Christ is, was still so very limited. I see you, Jesus. You look like a tree walking around. So Jesus needs to teach his followers many things first. Things about the sacrificial Savior. Things that they couldn't see on their own. So Jesus begins by combining the prophecies of the Messiah King with those of the suffering servant. And if we had more time, we could explore this richly in Isaiah. But for now, I'll just have you look at or listen to four things from four chapters. Isaiah contains four chapters called the Servant Songs. It's chapter 42 and 49, 50 and 53. And 42 describes God's coming servant as filled with the Spirit, a king strong yet caring, able and willing to establish 
justice on earth. And chapter 49 says God's servant will be a prophet, equipped and called to restore the nation of Israel, as well as being a light unto the Gentiles. Chapter 50 expresses that God's servant is thoroughly obedient, abused, yet ultimately vindicated and victorious. But chapter 53 says his servant will be despised, crushed, pierced, and stricken, like a lamb to the slaughter, smitten by God, bearing the sins of many to make them righteous. And no one thought that these two servants, the king and the killed, would be the same person. Because no one ever saw a king win a battle by succumbing to death. So Peter naturally objects. No, Jesus, the, the Christ triumphs. In Greek it says, Peter rebukes Jesus. He strongly chastises, reproves, castigates and it's the very same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons out of the afflicted. And it's the very same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes Peter in this very next verse. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan? It seems a bit harsh, Jesus. I mean, that's a bit extreme, no? But I want you to stop and take notice of Jesus' actions here, and then his words. Jesus turns. It says he stops and turns. And seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. Jesus turns here because he is forced to. He's on the road to Jerusalem now, and Peter is blocking his path. So Jesus must turn and must correct him because nothing but nothing will deter him from obeying the Father and anything but anything that stands in his way will be removed with power. When you or I oppose the will of God, we are acting just like Satan would, no different. So rebuke is necessary. Nothing can happen until we repent. Jesus might sound a bit harsh, but note, he's not mad at Peter. He doesn't hate him or fire him. He rebukes him. And rebuke, my friends, is not rejection. In fact, if you are a Christian, this is what you need and what you want. This is discipline. This is discipleship. Rebuke is a welcomed event in the, in the Christian's walk. As a Christian, when I step off the righteous path, don't get mad at me. Don't hate me. Don't fire me from being your friend. But rebuke me. And in love and truth, I might someday get the opportunity to rebuke you. This is sanctification. It's iron sharpening iron. It is what a friend is called to do. Read the Bible. This teaching is as old as Moses. Read Leviticus 19.17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but shall reason frankly with your neighbor. And many translations say rebuke your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
if you don't rebuke your brother in his sin, this says you hate him. And in being too nice or too scared or unwilling to show him his sin, you will incur it for yourself. Rebuke is how we help each other. I'm going to tell you about my most significant rebuke. When I was a pimply-faced 18-year-old, I went off to Bible school, went off to college on my own, and lived in the dorms and stayed up late, ate the cafeteria food as much as I could, and I loved it. Had friends everywhere, enjoyed the whole thing, but I lived as if the rules didn't apply to me. And I would sneak out it after hours. And I would do pranks with my friends. And I wasn't listening to the rules that were very clear and very plain, not hard. And I got kicked out of Bible school. I had to stand in front of the academic staff and explain why when I wrote my name saying I would obey the rules there, why I didn't. And I said, I was just fooling around. I was just being silly. But I didn't have the things of God in my mind. And after giving me a few chances, they said, that's enough for you. And they kicked me out of Bible school. And I spent the rest of that semester working in the cold Alberta North building steel barns. And when I came back, I was different. If I had not been rebuked by loving Christians, it would have been the police, I'm sure. Stealing buses, burning park benches, I don't know, silly stuff. But I would have learned a much harsher lesson without the love of a Christian community. Leighton, you do not have the things of God on your mind, but the things of man. Peter, you do not have the things of God on your mind, but the things of man. You show the hypocrisy, the very same hypocrisy of the Pharisees when you oppose God's will. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And here's the next earth-shattering lesson. Not only will the, the Messiah be rejected and suffer and be killed, but those who would be his followers will be subject to the same. Notice that after rebuking Peter, the next thing Jesus does is call the crowd. He calls to the crowd calls them and his disciples. Everyone is now included. This call is to all who would someday follow Jesus. The secret is out. Jesus now turns to the crowd and he invites everyone in on the messianic secret. The true Messiah will be a suffering servant. And if anyone would acknowledge the Christ, they will have to suffer the same. Josh has been teaching from Romans 8 this month, and its words inform this passage. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Savior will suffer, and his chosen people will suffer too. In Jesus' day, the cross would have been a well-known, ugly instrument of Roman execution. But taking up one's own cross would have been strange information. Are all Jesus' followers going to die? Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Following a losing Messiah sounds crazy. You and I are hardwired for self-preservation. Paul himself says in Romans 5, 7, no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But doesn't this all sound more like a death cult than a path toward the redemption of Israel? In fact, instead of carrying their crosses, every one of the disciples abandons Jesus in his final hours. When their metal was tested, they melted like snow. Then everything changed. Once Jesus rose again and the Spirit came, then almost every disciple lived boldly for Jesus and actually died boldly for him as well. Remember then that by the time this gospel was sent out, the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah became the hope of the fledgling church. Even while the shadow of death hung heavy over the new Christian community, what a difference a few short years makes. By the time the gospel was being spread, the believers knew what it meant to carry their cross, to deny oneself for Jesus and for the gospel. And they knew this because this is how Jesus the Savior lived and died and rose again. Verse 34 teaches the self-centered life must be put to death. And verse 35, that the safe life must be put to death too. We die to self that others might live. Our good witness will destroy our comfort-focused lives our world-approved reputations, our self-seeking accumulations. But church, this is a death that brings spiritual life. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus was sent to reveal the glory of God to a world intoxicated by its own glory. The idiom of gaining the world expresses this well. And so instead we must ask, how are we to die in order that we would live? In answer, Jesus turns the language to the language of commerce to open his followers' eyes even more, saying, this is about your soul. This is about your eternity. What profit is there in gaining everything if it costs you your soul? We might ask, what good can come of burning the canoe that you're paddling in? How will you float? For Jesus says, there is nothing 
that one can pay in order to buy back their soul. There's nothing that we can give in order to pay for our sins, our rebellion, and our disdain for the Lord. Our life must be purchased by another. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when it comes, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. John Piper simplifies this, and I'd like you to hear these words. The opposite of being ashamed of somebody is being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen by, with them. Loving to be identified with them, in fact. So Jesus is saying, if you are embarrassed by me and the price that I paid for you, if you are not proud of me, and remember Paul says we are to boast in the Lord, so this is an okay word. If you do not cherish me and what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you, and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. We need to settle this now, my friends. Your normal, everyday Christian walk involves putting to death all of your self-interest. It will throw off every sin that entangles and ensnares. It will daily kill the old man of flesh that cares only for himself. It will supplant God's will for your own. It will bear witness about your king at the very great expense of all the things that this world, this world holds dear. And it will rejoice in the suffering that this elicits, knowing that you are identifying with Jesus and are being grown through this pain. Settle this now. 600 years ago, Thomas Kempis wrote about this, and it reads like it could have been written this year. Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, but few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, but few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread. Few as far as drinking of the cup of suffering. Many that revere his mor morality, few that follow him in the indignity of his cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or become deeply depressed. But those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, are those who bless him in times of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation. 
the normal Christian life is a radical departure from the normal Canadian life, or American, or African, or Indian. It relinquishes, relinquishes will and control to the one with absolute will and sovereign control. It falls in line behind the Christ, being willing to bear the lateral beam of one's cross each day. It is a life reliant on God alone for the strength and wisdom and discipline and love necessary to follow Christ on his road. Why does it take a lifetime for the Holy Spirit to prepare us for heaven? Why does sanctification take so long to take root? Why is the normal life of a Christian so radical to all others? Because the life breathed into a person chosen by God means a daily death to everything this worldly life offers. And it's a slow death. Lifelong. Hear me please. Faith and sanctification replace our will with God's. And it is a slow, painful death of the flesh. But it is replaced by a rich and fruitful life of belief and trust and obedience. There is only one Savior and path to the Father, and he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, I didn't put it all together. The gospel message is strewn throughout this sermon. But we are about to partake in communion together. And that ties it all up. That brings it all together. Christ died that we might live. We die with Christ that he might live in us. As the worship team comes up and the servers get ready to pass out the elements I ask that you would hold on to them. Let's pray. Father, great God, we thank you for these elements which we share this morning. Blessing this bread and this cup to your purposes in us. Sanctify us in this remembrance, we pray. Amen.